This week, we continue our summer series, Gleanings from Genesis, by leaping into the fourth chapter. The chapter that you may know that introduces the first recorded murder in the Bible. It is the story of Cain and Abel. You probably know the story well. But before we go to the fourth chapter and read about Cain and Abel and what happens with the brothers, let's refresh our memories upon the first recorded sin, which is in Genesis chapter 3. It happens to be with Cain and Abel's parents, Adam and Eve, as you may know already as well. Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a light to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also to some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, in that story, we've heard it countless times. There is that big debate. Was it Eve's fault or was it Adam's fault? So you can pass blame to whoever you want to. But whoever you blame, yeah, they're both at fault. Clearly, the serpent used manipulation, trickery, deceit, and lies to tempt what would be the first parents of Adam and Eve. Now, obviously, the parents then, Adam and Eve, could not withstand the temptation provided by the enemy. But that demonstrates that how sin is manifested, how sin begins to stir, and how it grows from maybe a tadpole to a frog. Maybe you've been curious before, how does sin actually begin? Have you ever wondered how sin starts? I mean, a temptation you're going about your life, and the temptation just seems to surface. And it just grabs your attention. Then try as you might, you try to withstand that temptation, don't even turn to it, but it, it seems like it keeps pulling you into the entrapment, constantly enticing you by the intrigue of what if. The mere thought of acting and the desire to obtain and the thought of just satisfaction from the temptation becomes more than you can actually stand, more than you can bear. At that moment, you literally stand on the brink of falling to the temptation wholeheartedly, or you stand hoping and praying for the power to say no. And it becomes a decision time. Do you fall to the temptation and act upon it, or do you look for the Holy Spirit to equip you? the power to say no. If you've ever been in that situation, then you know you're not alone. Because every man, every person, every woman, every child has also come to the enemy's trickery, trickery at least once in their life except for Jesus. I mean, consider everything was perfect in the garden. As God created, everything was pronounced as good. Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 says it actually was very good. But nonetheless, Genesis 3, moving into Genesis 4, is where we find the beginning, the manifestation of sin as written in the Bible. Notably, it didn't stop with the first parents of Adam and Eve. 
it dwindled down into the first family. We find it in today in the story of, Ab- of Cain and Abel. It's a story you probably know well, but let us go to this story, begin to read it, dissect it, and see how we can apply this story of Cain and Abel to our lives. So stand with me this morning. If you're able to do so, as we go to Genesis chapter 4, we're going to read the first 15 verses of the chapter, and then we'll begin to dissect and apply in our lives. So Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten the man with the help of the Lord. And again, verse 2, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offerings, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain in verse 6, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. His desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. But Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said to him, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wonder on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Father, Lord, we come before you today, having read an account very familiar with us. We pray, Lord, today as we begin to look at this familiar account of two boys, Cain and Abel, that the story would not be just something we've read over before and just would not listen to the word you've chosen for today, but we would heed the word and see how we dissect this text and see how it can apply to our lives we're living today. Lord, just lead and guide and direct us now in our heart to receive the message you have for us of how we have sin in our lives and how we have the power to say no to the evil one. Thank you, Lord for this message we have here today, for giving to us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, notice first, the inherent within the text is the understanding then that with that first sin in the previous chapter between Adam and Eve, then no longer was everything perfect as it originally was when God made the Garden of Eden. Now, because of the sin that we've read over a little bit in Genesis 3, now that first parents... I mean, they had to struggle against the elements in order to provide food, shelter, and clothing. Now, the same then carries into the lives of the children. As the text reveals, Cain, the firstborn, 
became a farmer, while Abel became a shepherd, a keeper of a flock. Now, while we can discern that very quickly from the text, go also further to see that there's a bit of division, if you will, within the text. Within the 15 verses that we read, there's acts or scenes or divisions within that text. Obviously, in verses 1 and 2, we find out the brothers are born. Again, there's Cain, who is the firstborn, which the Hebrew name for Cain sounds like the words for acquired possession. And there's also Abel, the secondborn, with the Hebrew word for his name basically sounding like the Hebrew word for breath. But as the brothers are born in the very beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 4, thereby creating the first family, if you will, Note the divisions that occur quickly right after. Because in verses 3 and 5, you have the brothers who, one's a farmer, Cain, the other, the shepherd, Abel, they bring an offering, a presentation, if you will, of the offerings, the sacrifices in verses 3 through 5. But then we find quickly in verses 6 and 7 that sin knocks at the door. It presents itself. Verse 8, particularly with Cain, sin is realized. Abel is no more. Verses 9 through 16, of course, you got denial of the sin, the consequences, and the trial of judgment. Now, as you reflect upon those scenes, you see the kind of division behind me in the way we've broken them down. You should be able to observe that the same kind of thing happens in our lives. The same kind of pattern exists. The manifestation of sin in our lives is very similar. As mentioned earlier, if the manifestation of sin we're just going about our lives, living the lives we live, living the dream, so to speak, and the whatever we're doing. Then as we're living the dream, enjoying every aspect of life, suddenly sin knocks at the door and presents itself. As sin knocks itself with some sort of temptation, begin to be contemplated. It's considered. The temptation really then is too much to bear. So, Sin is realized and acted upon soon after. And always after the sin is the denial that we didn't really do that and the consequences thereafter. But notice that as that manifestation, the pattern exists itself over and over and over again, that it happens to everyone. It's a ruthless pattern to everyone. Paul had correctly written, for all all fall short of the glory of God. It's you, me, children, all ages, except for one our Lord and Savior. Then while the text offers the manifestation of sin that we talk about this morning, notice also, if you will, that we go back to the text because it has a way to apply to our lives. So go back to verse 3 and look again at the way the offering is presented. Notice in verse 3, as we mentioned, that Cain is the first to bring an offering to the Lord. Now notice, if you will, when he brings his offering, there's nothing inherently wrong. There's nothing inferior about a grain sacrifice versus an animal sacrifice that to bring into the Lord the offering. But yet the text reveals somehow, some way, that God looked on favor with Abel's offering, but not on Cain's. Notice further, if you will, that the text does not state why God chose Abel's offering over Cain's, nor how the brothers knew that God favored Abel's offering. Again, it shows us that Cain brought simply some of his agricultural produce he got from the ground. But Abel brought the best of his flock, which then shows an attitude of faith and respect he had for God. So the significance then of what we find within the verses is the 
faith of the offerer, particularly Abel, not the sacrifice itself. So it leads one to conclude that God was responding then in the way he met with the two boys and verbalized that he was responding the difference of the attitude with the two brothers. The text exalts the high quality of Abel's offering with the phrases like the firstborn and the fat portions. Those terms convey that Abel was giving his very best to the flock, his first. He acknowledged God's lordship over his flock and the increase of his labor. Whereas if you look at Abel, I mean uh, Cain's, Cain did not. It does not say that Cain gave his first or his best. It leads then to the first application point, which is this. Only the best in our sacrifices or particularly our offerings are acceptable to God. He wants our very best. It's quite simple. God wants the very best we have. So as we understand that, then begin to see the application. The question then says, well, what do you bring as an offering to God? Is it your very best? And most people, when they begin to think about an offering, we don't really bring sacrifices, if you will, to the Lord. We don't really think about it in that way. What we bring to the Lord is an offering. And as we bring an offering to the Lord, what is it you're bringing him? And most people think about an offering being something monetarily. It's money. However, God is interested in so much more than your money. Now, let me quickly follow tell you, I'm not against anybody giving to the church. There's the boxes. Give as you will. So, But God is interested in so much more than the money that you have. For example, every one of us, as much as we look different, every one of us has a special skill set, a talent, a gift that we have that's given to us. Now, some of us are more proficient others in, in areas that others are not. For example, music. You never want to hear me sing out loud. I sing. I sing rather quietly. If I would get up here and sing, you would ask me to leave. That's why we have Josh and Colton and others that could do it. I'm not proficient at all in playing an instrument. That's why there's Steve and Chris. Again, Josh and Colton playing instruments. You wouldn't want me banging those things at all. If I did... They would ask me quickly, get off the stage, I'm doing it. Josh wouldn't have me in his band. I'm not a beatitude. I'm not talented in that area. But they are. And when they come, they should be ready to give their best. Or if it's not music. I mean, not all of us are geared to want to study and learn and teach. While I'm not gifted in any way musically, I love to study and teach. I mean, it's, it's what I excel at, it seems, to be able to study and teach and learn. While there's others then that would rather not do music, would rather not do study, maybe, but they have a way of communicating with children. So they become our children leaders, and they volunteer for stuff for vacation Bible school and for children's church. But yet others then are just have a special gift of money management, of managing resources and getting the most of them. Whereas some of us can't really keep a dime in our pocket. The point of all that is this. What special skill set do you have? What gift do you have the Lord has given you? And are you using that skill set, that gift, that talent? Or are you giving that your very best to the Lord? Because we should. Whatever it is, he deserves it. He deserves our very best. 
In the book of Malachi, you may know that we learned that God was very upset with the priests and the people when they were bringing inferior sacrifices to the altar. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 8, it says, When you offer blind animals a sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? It's amazing to know that the priests and the people were getting by with the fact of taking these inferior animals for sacrifices to the Lord. Malachi calls them on the carpet with it. But we can apply that nonetheless as our application of today. That only the best in the offerings, our best offerings, our best ability, our best talented should be acceptable to God. And further, that God will only be pleased with us giving our best. It's the same thought, if you will, when you give to the needy. When you get ready to give something to somebody that really needs something, do you get them something that you just don't want anymore, that you don't really like anyway, or do you give something of value to them? Because you give something of value to them that actually then is an offering or a sacrifice that you're making. Or if you give them something you just don't want anymore, so you're going to take to the yard sale, it's not that big a deal anymore. When we were children, I may have used this story before, my mom perked up pretty quick when I said we were children. When we were children, my mom would make us clothing, my brother and I particularly, and also my sister, but my brother and I had these matching leisure suits. I wished I would have thought about this earlier and bought you a picture of the leisure suit, because they're, they're like a, a suit. You know, that's what the word is used within the description, a suit. But it didn't really have a tie with it, but I mean, it was maroon and navy. And we had these matching, offsetting leisure suits that was totally ugly. I mean, mom made them, we wore them, but they were completely ugly. And, and they were not comfortable in any way. So if I was then wanting to help the needy by giving them my leisure suit, I'm not doing them any favors at all. I'm not offering them my best. I'm not offering them really a sacrifice. I'm getting rid of something I just don't want anymore. It's like giving them the leftovers. Like if you get ready to give food to the needy, you take your out of your refrigerator last night's supper and begin to give them the leftovers, or do you take them somewhere and get them something they really would deserve and need to help them? The whole point, again, is we just shouldn't give leftovers, especially when it's God. Don't give him your leftovers. Give him your very best. Because God looks upon the offering that you give him, whether it's monetarily or bodily, physically, time, or resources, in a manner that you should only give him your best. And your best and your first will be acceptable to him. That's the point we find in the beginning of the story of Cain and Abel. But before we transition quickly and move on to the rest, because there's so much more to cover, Think of it this way. Why would you want to cheat God out of what is rightfully his? Everything we have belongs to God. We maybe get to have it for a little while, but it's God's. So why not give him the very best of what he's blessed you with? In this text, it reveals that Abel gives what costs him most. He gives him the firstborn and the choicest selection of the flock. On the other hand, Cain's offering is not described as the first or the best, merely as the fruit. The difference in quality and attitude may be the key to God's differing reactions with the two boys. 
But whatever the case, let us go back to the text and note then Cain's reaction to it all. Note, if you will, in verses 5 through 7, when the offering has been made, notice Cain's reaction. It says, for Cain in his offering, he had no regard, talking about how God is kind of did not show favor to Cain with the offering. So then it tells us Cain's reaction. Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Which then to continue in the text, prompts a line of questioning by God to Cain. And it says, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Let me ask you there for just a moment we stop. Did Cain have any legitimate reason to be angry with God? I mean, Cain chose his offering. And then God knew it wasn't his best. So Cain's reaction shows, if you will, a wrong attitude towards God. I mean, it's not the creator. It is the creator's prerogative to decide what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. So then for Cain to be angry and to express anger and violence that ultimately he did shows a complete distorted view of a human being's reaction to the relationship they should have with God. And also points us to a second application, which is this. The human beings are not in competition with each other for relationship with God. If you think about it on the surface there, it looks like Cain was kind of competing with Abel and that he wanted maybe to have his offering to be just as acceptable, just as favorable as it was of his brothers. Like he was in competition about it. So the point begins to tell us that human beings, me and you, we should not be in competition with each other for a relationship with God. God's love for one does not diminish his love for another. Now, that might be how we apply life as humans. Because it seems sometimes we can't love people equally. But God can. He's God. So we shouldn't be in competition for his love. Our only competition should be with the person we used to be. So as we enter relationship with God by accepting his son as Lord and Savior, our nature should begin to change. To just pure happiness and contentment. Not envy and jealousy. There's no place, there's no room for envy and jealousy in the kingdom. So somehow, some way, if someone has a certain amount of blessing coming to them, and you observe and see that, just be happy for them. Not jealous and envious. Don't be upset it wasn't you. Be content with the blessing merely that you have from God. If we begin to be competitive Christians, envious and jealous of one another, then we need to back up for a minute and re, maybe reevaluate our heart. Because maybe our heart really isn't right. Something within our heart isn't right if we feel that we've got to be competitive for a relationship with God. And it seems to happen to anyone almost at any time. I'll even admit to you that it happens with pastors where they begin to get competitive for church membership. I mean, every pastor that I know wants a church to be full, always. Every Sunday, we want the house to be full, every Sunday. So when we begin to have that competition among pastors on attendance, which in correlation really is like a competition for relationship with God, 
then becomes that our heart maybe isn't quite right. There's actually a joke that seminary professors kind of have on the campus that they share with students and with faculty. They go something like this. Say pastors go to a conference, which happens occasionally. Pastors go to a conference, and when you go to a conference, you're only not only learning some things for yourself and for your ministry, but you're many other churches, you're finding out about them, you're meeting other pastors. So there's a joke goes something like, there's say there's Mike and Tom who are both pastors. And Mike goes up to Tom and says, as it seems to always be, Tom, how, how big is your church, brother? I mean, how, how, how many people are coming? How are things going? Well, then, as Mike asked Tom, Tom answers. Oh, well, we're doing pretty good. I mean, we got probably over 200 people coming now in attendance. And it's going well enough where we had to start a second service. Well, Mike hears that, and he replies, oh, that is great news, Tom. Glad to hear that. With, with really within his heart, he's thinking, oh, man, he's doing better than we are. So then Mike, after hearing Tom's response, he'll go over to find another little group. And he goes over and finds Kurt. And he comes up to Kurt, and he says, Kurt, brother, how's things going at your church, man? How many people do you have in common? And Kurt says to him, well, we don't have a, a big church. We have a great small church. We have a church family. We have 45 people coming every week. We have great outreach. But Mike's thinking, he's hearing this. He's thinking, I want to hang with Kurt because I've got more people coming than Kurt does. I've got about 100 people coming, so I'm going to hang with him. So Mike then, as, he talk, as Kurt is talking, is processing all that, and when Kurt gets to talking, he says, that's great, man. That's good. But his competitive juices also get flowing. It's gets simmering. He says, but I have 100 coming. Competition exists, even in churches. It's sad but true. It does happen. Again, the overarching point here is that human beings are not in competition for each other for a relationship with God. If any follower of God begins to have jealousy via competition, then we need to stop, slow down, reevaluate the heart, because the heart is not right. The condition of the heart is not right. Now, as it relates back to the story, observe that Cain wasn't rejected because necessarily of his offering. But his offering was rejected because of Cain himself. Because his heart was not right with God. Notice that, or, or consider the fact that it was by faith that Abel offered his, gave his offering to God. In Hebrews eleven four it says, "By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts." Which all that means is that faith that Abel had faith in God and gave him his very best. Abel brought the very best he had and truly sought to please God. But Cain apparently didn't have that same attitude of faith. It was all about the competition. Cain's lack of faith shows up in response to God's rejection of his fruit offering. Verses 5 through 7, again, notice that rather than being concerned about remedying the situation, as God maybe doesn't show favor upon Cain, but show favor upon Abel, rather than remedying that situation and pleasing God, it tells us he got angry. I mean, what prevented Cain from maybe going out and getting the very best of what was in the field and giving it to God? But no, it didn't say this. It says Cain got very angry. 
In fact, he gets so angry, if you will, verses 6 and 7, that he could not be talked out of his sin by God. God is talking to Cain, trying to let him know he shouldn't be angry, and he can't even talk Cain out of his sin. Which applies a question for us. We need to evaluate. Have we ever been in Cain's position? We were so angry, so tempted, that the Holy Spirit could not stop you from indulging into the sin. Have we ever been there? I mean, if we're honestly evaluating ourselves, we need to recognize we've all been there at one point in our lives. Essentially, we can relate to Cain because we've been there at some point. Maybe not right now, but we've been there at some point. And that we're so focused on the desire, the temptation, the lust, the satisfaction, that nothing can stop us from completing it, from acting upon it. We've all been there at some point. As you look into Scripture, that's exactly, if you will, what happened to David as he sought out Bathsheba. You know, David should have been at war with the rest of the men. He was at home in the palace, taking it easy, maybe a little rest. He observed Bathsheba out on the porch, on a rooftop, and he has to have her. He seeks after who she is. But when David begins to seek out Bathsheba, there's a point in the story in 2 Samuel 11, if you go back and read it, there's a point in the story where one of the servants comes to him and says, David, isn't she the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It's like he's telling his master, David, she's married, dude, leave her alone. But David was so intent, he was so focused upon the beauty he saw he didn't listen. He acted upon his lust. He fell to the evil one. Sin was crouching at the door. David let it in, and it conquered him. As it was in the story with Cain. Cain simply did not heed the counsel from God. It tells us in verse 7 that sin is crouching, like lying at the door. And in verse 8, Cain just opened the door, let the sin conquer him, and he killed his brother. Another application presents itself. That when sin knocks at the door, just don't answer. Just run away from it. Just run. Flee. That didn't happen to Cain. He didn't flee. He didn't run. He accepted it. Opened the door. The way to see the story unfold between Cain and his reaction reminds us really of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. As to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour next. In everyone's lives, sin lies at the door. Sin was crouching, if you will, for Cain, the way we can picture it, like an animal at the door, ready to overcome him. At the door means literally it was so close that Cain had to deal with it. Notice how the text says his desire was for him. A desire or urge means a strong attraction or drive that begins to consume your every thought. It plants itself into your heart until satisfied. But notice, if you will, that the text reveals to us at the same time, kind of simultaneously, 
that he should have mastery or that we should have mastery over the sin lying at the door. Verse 7 says, sin lies at the door, its desires for you, but you should rule over it. Well, here then presents one of the perpetual and never-ending problems in life that we have as humans. That there's this temptation and there's what we should be doing against the temptation. There's like there's good and there's evil. The perpetual never-ending problem we have as humans is like one side of our shoulder, maybe our left shoulder, presents itself with the devil telling us something that is just glorious, that we need to achieve, that we need to have, we need to go after. And the Holy Spirit on the right side telling us, dude, you look, you know you don't need to get in this. You need to avoid this particular situation. But it seems so often that we listen more to the left shoulder telling us that we need to act upon it and the right shoulder telling us we should not. But the text tells us that when it begins to present itself that we should be able to rule over it, that we should have master over it. And the truth is this, that we're not a puppet at the hand of the evil one. With God's help, we have the ability to say no. Look in Ephesians 6.13. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil, in the, in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Or James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Or 1 Peter 5, 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. As we teeter in life between right and wrong, there's a scale. We teeter between right and wrong Good and evil, good and bad, evil and righteousness, must always cry out to God to help balance the equation. We cannot do it ourselves. We cannot really say no by ourselves because we're human. We need God to help us, and God's available. The Holy Spirit is available to help us say no. So we must let go of any selfish ambition, pride, ego, hate, and anger. And give all of us to God before it begins to control us. Simply do not let the evil one control you or to rule over you. Recognize you have the power of the Holy Spirit to say no. The whole point again is when sin knocks at the door, when it's lying, crouching at the door, do not answer, but rather run and flee. Turn to the Holy Spirit. Let him give you the power to say no. Just listen. But yet, moving ahead, there's much more to the story, so let us go. Verses 9 through 16, particularly verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10, you approach, God approaches Cain and asks about his brother Abel. Look at the text. God asks, where is your brother? Note, if you will, the striking resemblance to God asking Adam, where are you? When Adam had sinned, whether it's Adam's fault or Eve's fault is a debate, yeah. But whoever was fully blamed, and really both were, God come to Adam and said, where are you? He's coming to Cain now saying, where's your brother? In both scenarios, God is fully aware of where each are. Adam could not hide from God, and Cain cannot conceal the murder of his brother. But Cain, upon the questioning, notice how he strikes back. God says, where's your Abel, your brother? And he says, 
am I my brother's keeper? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He outright lied to God. He knows precisely where Abel is and what happened and where he is now. But also God knows. You can't fool God. Provides an application. Matthew Henry says, God takes notice of all of our sinful passions and discontents. There is not an angry look, an envious look, nor a fretful look that escapes its observing eye. God knows. God is the all-knowing God. It's one of his attributes, some Psalms 121 verse 8 reminds that God knows you're coming and you're going. Psalms 139 is often referred to as the inescapable God. Hey, oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. God certainly knows. But he asked, nonetheless, in verse 10, ask Cain, what have you done? Again, rhetorical, because God fully knows. But notice how the question sets up then the completion of the short-lived trial and judgment that shall be upon Cain. An ultimate consequence. Look in verse 11. He says, Now then, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to his strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wonder on the earth. Well, notice Cain responds. Look at Cain's response here. He responds by saying, My punishment is too great to bear. It's greater than I can bear. Observe here then the story. As it's moved along, sin presented itself. Sin has been contemplated, considered. Sin has been conceived. Sin has been realized. And now it must be dealt with. Which leads to the fourth and final application. The consequences of sin is never pleasurable. Never pleasurable. God pronounced Cain's punishment. God placed Cain under curse that drove him from the ground that he received his brother's blood. Cain exclaimed, it's more punishment than he could bear. He complained bitterly about being driven away from the land, being hidden from God's presence, and becoming a restless wonder. Notice that Cain even said he feared that someone might kill him. I'm thinking, what? Someone might kill you? I'm thinking, I'm in Genesis chapter 4. Okay, okay there's Adam. There's Eve, there's Cain, and Abel. Abel was killed. He's gone. There's three people. Who's going to kill him? He feared that someone would kill him. He's just simply telling God, I can't stand this punishment. And Cain's reaction to the punishment, he should be noted, he's not showing any remorse really for his actions. He's only complaining about the punishment. He says, my punishment is too great to bear. Thinking someone's even going to kill him when it's just his mom and dad. His mom and dad and him. Cain is not sorry for his act. He's just sorry for the consequences. I mean, is that the way we are? We begin to live our lives and that manifestation of sin begins to happen and begin to act upon it? Are we not really sorry for the sin? The crime, the act that we had, I mean, are we really only sorry 
because we got caught? Is that our regret that we actually got caught? There's times we live a lot like Cain. We live sometimes too close to Cain. Sometimes we are Cain. So the story is a wonderful story. And we could go on and on probably for another hour. I'm not going to, but we probably could. Because there's so much more to apply here. But as we begin to prepare to close here, applications present themselves. But notice, if you will, the story of Cain and Abel just simply presents the manifestation of sin. There's things that just present itself in life that happens. And you're not prepared for it. We're just going about the life that we're living. Again, I described it earlier as living the dream. And we're living that dream. Everything seems to be going hunky-dory. Everything's great. Everything's fine. And all of a sudden, we're caught off guard when something begins to present itself. Almost like David was when he saw Bathsheba. We're not maybe looking for it. It just comes along on the path that we're in. Suddenly, all of a sudden, the sin presented itself. We have the ability then to either say no, or we have the ability to act upon it. Sometimes the temptation is way too great. We seem to not be able to resist it in our human flesh. So we act upon it. And after we act upon it comes the sin and the consequence and the denial that come as a result. That's what happens in the story. We can see that they emerge. It's the manifestation of sin that presents itself over and over in our lives. But also see in the story then, as we've gone through some application, that it reminds us we have, we don't recognize it at times, but we have the ability with God's help to say no. We need to recognize we have that ability. We, we don't really have the ability. I'm using those words. It's not the right word to use. We don't really have the ability. We have God's help. And we can't do it alone. Really, we are powerless to the enemy. When it begins to present itself, some temptation, we just can fall for it because we're just, our human flesh begins to rule over us. But we have something to help us. We have the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide and direct us. So today as we live and apply the application and be, see how we can become Cain, we need to recognize that we can say no. Just say no. Say no to the temptation from the evil one. Recognize the Holy Spirit when it begins to speak to you and listen. Do not open the door to the enemy and allow him to trick you and deceive you. Simply let the Holy Spirit lead you in every aspect of life. When you are tempted, allow the Spirit to lead you into conquering and overcome the greatest temptations you'll ever face. And don't think for a minute you face one temptation and it's done. That's not how the enemy works. If you've turned down one temptation through the Holy Spirit to say no, he's not going to give up with one. He's going to tempt you over and over again. Over and over again. So be prepared. Be ready. Be vigilant. Have the Holy Spirit to lead you and listen to say no. Father, Lord, thank you for this message this morning. It's a message we probably have recognized. We've heard some parts before. We've heard this story before. We know the story of Cain and Abel. We know how Cain killed Abel. How we know how his sacrifice seemed to be inferior to God. 
We see the Lord also now had sacrifices offering was one of not the best. For several applications emerge from the story. Let us today recognize we give our very best to God. Whatever God has gifted us with. It may be monetarily, it may be physically, maybe whatever whatever he's gifted us with. Lord. Today we take a moment to recognize that gift and to give him our very best of what he's blessed us with. We also see, Lord, how it applies to us. And that we need to recognize that we have the Holy Spirit to listen to, to lead us, to guide us, to direct us. And when the evil one comes upon us in our lives, that we can say no. We don't have to act upon that temptation. So Lord, I pray for all of us then today to be equipped, to be ready, to be vigilant, and say no. Let us go about pleasing you, God. Pleasing you and not rebel against you. You deserve that, Lord. You deserve our best. And you deserve that we would obey. So let us go about fulfilling that today. Thank you. Thank you for the message. Thank you for your son. In Jesus' name we pray.